0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years, maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In the last couple of years, many people turned to home baking as a distraction, as solace, and also because it's fun and the results can be delicious. Myself, I like to leave it to the pros, And that's exactly who we're talking with on this week's Louisiana Eats. We begin with internet cake sensation Bronwyn Wyatt of Bayou Saint Cake. She mesmerized me with her Instagram postings. And that was before she tickled my taste buds with a piece of her cake. Then we sit down with bakers Kelly Jacques and Samantha Weiss who are bringing freshly baked joy to New Orleans Marigny at IU Bakehouse. One taste of their Mufalada breadsticks, and I was hooked. Finally, we learn how to laminate dough for the perfect croissant with Gracious Bakery's Megan Foreman. Pat-a-cake, pat cake baker girls. We've got them all here on this week's Louisiana Eats. Since its inception, Instagram has been a useful tool for small businesses looking to market their goods. It's also served as a gathering place for like minded people to share ideas and inspiration. For pastry chef Bronwyn Wyatt, it's been a little bit of both. In 2020, the New Orleans baker launched her cake company, Bayou Saint Cake, finding connections with fellow bakers and customers online. Fascinated by art and design, Bronwyn decorates her cakes in bold and beautiful styles that are a natural fit for Instagram posts. Her eye-popping designs practically make you want to lick the screen. But as Bronwyn has emphasized, flavor always comes first. Currently, Bayou Saint Cake has found its home in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, only yards away from our Louisiana Eats studios. Bronwyn took a break from baking to talk with us about her life and career. I'm a native New Orleanian. You're a new New Orleanian, but you came to us the way some of our very best do, through Tulane.
1: It's true, yeah. I came here to study in 2001.
0: I guess that must have been your graduating year then that Katrina happened.
1: It's true, and I was actually about to enter my first year of grad school at Tulane that next semester, so the the fall after Katrina. So if I did end up finishing grad school at Tulane, and then after that, tried to continue to live in the city, but it was still, a, as you know, I'm sure, a difficult time to be here. So I ended up moving up to Maine to live with my brother for a little while, um, and I truly thought it would be temporary. But he's a chef in a restaurant, and he got tired of me, like, sleeping on his couch and not paying rent. <laughs> and so he had me come work for him at his restaurant as a prep cook.
0: And that was your first venture into the restaurant biz? I had worked like, you know, small summer jobs
1: in restaurants before then, but it was my first fine dining restaurant gig. It was like a a really rapid education in just how restaurants work because I'd never been in fine dining before. So it was my introduction to the brigade system. It was my introduction to, like, you know, baking large quantities of things, which was like, a huge education. It's, it's one thing to bake one cake at home. It's quite another thing to do, like, plated desserts in a restaurant. <laughs> and then when I moved to California, that was when I truly realized the magic of, like, working with foods in season and kind of, like, moving through the seasons and cooking from farmer's markets. Um, you know, that – That whole movement kind of was born in California, and I think I was really lucky to have an education
0: there, too. How did you decide to come back to New Orleans? I just
1: missed it. It always felt like home to me in a way that I had great experiences in other places, but New Orleans has always had a special place for me. So I was at La Petite Grocery for three years. Um, I worked at Shia, at Willa Jean, and then Bacchanal and the Elysian Bar.
0: So COVID happens How does Bayou Saint Cake come to be?
1: It's so funny because I always tell people that I sort of found myself running a small business without actually even thinking about it or trying to. Like, I never went into this thinking that this would become my life or my primary income. Um, But when, you know, when COVID hit, I did get laid off. I still have a wonderful relationship with the folks at Bacchanal and Elysian Bar. There's, it was just, you know, the reality of the situation and I had been doing some baking, like, of whole cakes for them when, you know, restaurants were doing the pivot, and we were trying to do take-home family-style meals for folks. Mm-hmm. And those whole cakes were really popular. And I also had access to an incredible garden through Bacchanal. Um, that was the um, gardener's name is Jojo. She's incredible. But she would bring me these beautiful edible flowers and garnishes for the cakes. And I was like, this is kind of fun. Like, I'd, I've never been a cake baker. I was never particularly interested in cakes. But... Something about decorating these cakes with like seasonal produce and like flowers from this garden, it like really satisfied a creative itch for me. Like when we were all kind of essentially just collecting unemployment and sitting around just like waiting for the world to change. Um, So I started selling cakes through Instagram essentially. Like if I had a little menu, I would post it and folks would buy and and that's how it started.
0: You are the only person I know who can speak to me about internet cake culture. (laughs) Would you explain to me what that is and the ins and outs of running an internet cake business? For sure. Yeah. So, and this is true for so
1: many pastry chefs across the country. A lot of us got laid off because pastry tends to be the first to go if there's like budget cuts or things get tightened. Mm -hmm. So all sorts of pastry chefs got laid off at the same time. And At the same time, um, like Sasha Pillijan in L.A. is like one of the very first who who left her restaurant job and started baking um, cakes and selling them essentially using Instagram as our main like marketplace. And I think a lot of folks saw how well she was doing and thought, why don't we try it? So now there's all of these incredible pastry chefs across the country, many of whom work out of their homes and sell cakes on Instagram. And... You know, we all know each other through Instagram. We talk to each other. We DM. Um, I've had a really, like, a great chance to meet some of them in real life, too. And so you'll see these, like, design trends that, like, move through it, which I think is so interesting. Like, we'll see one baker doing something really cool in California and be like, I want to try that but put my own spin on it. And so you'll see that kind of crop up in, like, Toronto, Florida, um, you know, Chicago. It's, it's pretty incredible.
0: Your number one way to decorate a cake is with edible flowers. For sure, yeah. So although I, I really
1: admire like traditionally beautiful cakes, um, I think that I'm interested in like kind of pushing a little bit beyond what we think of as being traditionally pretty. So I'll use, um, you know, like small vegetables to decorate my cakes like baby eggplants or zucchini or tomatoes sometimes or dried seed pods I think are really interesting looking Um And I'm also influenced a lot. Um, I was actually an, an art undergrad major at Tulane. So I have a little bit of background in like art history and fine art. So I'm interested in like movements like Memphis style you know, like still lives, like I, I think there's so many cool ways to incorporate trends and art into cakes too. So you'll see some of that play out as well.
0: Memphis style is where you get your squiggles. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So I, I always joke that it, it's kind of like a, the cover of like a 90s trapper keeper notebook, <laughs> where you'll see like, a you know, like all sorts of interesting shapes scattered across a visual field with like squiggles and like little triangles or squares. So I kind of mimic that with flowers and buttercream.
0: You have such a thing for using prunes that the California <laughs> Prune Council came after you, huh? To to support you. It's true. Yeah. I'm sponsored by,
1: by California Prunes, which is just like a uh, dream sponsorship, Um I I've, I've actually been approached to be sponsored by, like, a couple different folks in the past, and this is the only one that's, like, really felt like a natural fit. Prunes especially, and also, like, a lot of dried fruit, um, they're drying them at, like, the height of that fruit's flavor. So you're really getting, like, a concentrated burst of, like, what that fruit tasted like when it was at its best. I also think that um, we don't have a lot of things in the pastry world that have like um, a sense of umami or like that kind of particular richness. And I think dried fruit really kind of carries that in in a way. Um, So it gives like a, a really beautiful depth to baked goods. Bronwyn, what does the future look
0: like for you?
1: A lot of folks have asked me if I want to open a brick and mortar, and the truth is I don't think I do. I think that I've found a level of like personal freedom and flexibility through this work that I'm just really loath to give up. So I think my plan is to try and keep doing it the way that I currently
0: am for as long as I can. You're a smart businesswoman managing your business the way I see it.
1: That's really kind. Yeah, a huge part of it is that, you know, when I was working full time in restaurants before, I had so much less time with my family. And then during COVID, I got that time back. And now I don't ever want to give it up again. Like, it's just not worth it to me.
0: Where's the name come from?
1: So I live really near Bayou St. John. And my wife and I would like take a long walk to Bayou St. John during quarantine. That was kind of like one of our activities that we would do together. Um, and just like sit on the banks and and like drink wine, so
0: it had become kind of a special place for us. I love the name, and you've just done such incredible things with it. I personally can't wait to see what's going to come next.
1: Thank you so much. That's so kind..
0: That was pastry chef Bronwyn Wyatt of Bayou Saint Cake. You can find her on Instagram at Bayou, S-A-I-N-T, Cake. Coming up next, we meet Kelly Jacques and Samantha Weiss. They're the co-owners of one of New Orleans' newest bakeries, IU Bakehouse. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Do your red beans cook up so creamy because they're cooked in Grandma's bean pot? Or is it her wooden spoon that makes them so special? Camellia Brand wants to honor your family's culinary keepsakes during their upcoming centennial. Share your treasures by emailing images and stories to me at poppy at poppytooker.com, and we'll make sure you're part of the celebration.
2: My name is Kelly Jacques. And I'm Samantha
3: Weiss. And we're co-owners of IU Bakehouse.
0: A fortuitous meeting in pastry school set Kelly and Samantha on a winding path that involved pie season, multiple jobs and moves, and eventually landed them on the corner of Dauphine and Frenchman Streets in New Orleans' Marigny neighborhood. That's where they opened IU Bakehouse. We traveled back to the start of that journey to learn what brought them to the city and reveal some of the yummy things they're baking up there.
3: So Samantha and I met in New York going to pastry school. Uh, We were taking night classes. I had just moved from New Orleans to go to school in New York, and Sam was secretly taking pastry classes at night
2: while working in finance. So they had a lot of treats that they couldn't understand where we're coming from three days a week. (laughs) We um, both were kind of
3: doing our own thing in New York. Uh, I was working at Bread's Bakery, which is uh, located in Union Square. So I started as a bread baker there while I was in school. And then Sam kind of got a great tour of all the best uh, chefs in New York.
2: Yeah, so I worked at a restaurant called iFiori. It's owned by Michael White. And then I became an operations manager for Jacques Torres Chocolate.
0: Yikes! Uh. that That's pretty impressive, Fred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: But all with the goal of learning as much as I could about how to work in the kitchen and how to work on the business side, knowing that at some point in time I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And actually always having in the back of my mind that I thought Kelly would be a great partner if that ever were to happen. I
3: didn't know this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So when uh, I needed a job one uh, fall, I reached out to Kelly and asked if Breads was hiring, and she said, yeah, I'm sure you could work at least for the season. Pie season. Um, Yeah, it was pie season. I made mm -hmm. a lot of pies, and (laughs) I was able to work very closely with Kelly for almost two years. Yeah, a couple years. We had
3: both been planning to leave New York separately. I was moving back down here. I met up with um, somebody I went to college with, Jake, who's now my fiancé. We're getting married in November. And very early on in our relationship, I was like, do you want to move back to New Orleans? And he was like, absolutely. So we got that plan in place. And then meanwhile, Samantha and her partner, Steve, were planning to move out to California And we ended up... We moved
2: out of New York (laughs) on the same day. Same day. Uh, March 5th, 2020. Yeah. (laughs) And unfortunately, COVID kind of changed those plans, and a lot of thinking happened during COVID, and Kelly told me, what, a year and a half ago that she was thinking of opening a bakery, and I said, well... I got to go do that with you. Like, that's what I want to do. And you're the only person that I think I'd want to do that with, at least right now. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) when you all are working together in New York, is what has happened today come to fruition in, in some of the crazy plans and hopes and dreams that you all had at that time?
2: I think so, yeah. and probably beyond. And yeah. yeah,
3: right. I mean, I think anyone working, probably anywhere, it has that moment where they're just like, "Oh, if I had my own place," <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs>
3: and and to some extent, you can make those changes that you want to see. In other ways, I think, like once you're kind of at the helm, you're dealing with the same things that your former bosses uh, had to deal with. You know, it's a uh, I, I don't know, I mean, I think something that was really important for us doing this was that we wanted to create a joyful place, because not every kitchen is very joyful, uh, if you've seen the bear, or, you know, yeah, ever I don't even
2: think it. I can bring myself to watch it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> and I think it all starts at the top, and starts with how Sam and I enter the space every day, you know, like, every day you kind of get this reset, and... uh I don't know. I know for me, my North Star is like, how do we keep this place joyful? Like, still do good work, still, like, hold ourselves to a high standard, but, like, like coming here every day. And our staff likes coming here. And then our customers will like coming here. So that's definitely our
0: our North Star. So why the Marigny? New Orleans is very distinct with its neighborhoods. How did you all find the location, choose the location? Why the Marigny? Yeah, well, when I moved
3: back here in 2020, uh, we ended up in Bywater. So I had passed by that location plenty of times. Um, one of like the things we would do when the pandemic first started was just take bike rides through the French Quarter because it was so quiet. I'd never experienced it like that before. And so I had seen that space and it had caught my eye. And I remembered like Desperado's Pizza from a while back. Santa Fe was a little before my New Orleans time, but... It always caught my eye. It's like, "Oh my god, it's so such a beautiful space it's on the park." And then I saw the listing for it on like a commercial database, and then I was like, there's no way we could get that space. Like, uh, it's too amazing. I don't I don't and know. And she sent it to me, <laughs> and
2: although I'd only visited New Orleans maybe a few times prior, I actually knew the space. I'd spent time on Frenchman, and I remember walking down Frenchman and seeing that building on the corner of the park. So, I was like, that would be a great location. Yeah.
3: and I, I mean, I remember going out in college, like going to Frenchman, and the party kind of stops when you hit the park, at least like 10 years ago, you know, and that was on my mind, like, you know, is it is it too far away? Like we kind of wanted to strike a balance of being rooted in a, a neighborhood. And that only got much clearer as COVID continued. And it was clear that neighborhoods were what were sustaining businesses. But we want to be close enough to tourists. We, we think also we, if we can be a part of uh, somebody's experience when they come to town, like that's a beautiful thing to,
0: to uh, contribute to as well. New Orleans has a lot of bread and <laughs> a lot of yeah. croissants and a lot of all that what is different about what you all are doing i think
3: i almost didn't decided not to open a bakery before doing this because i was like there's so many great places that have popped up since i left like is it needed i only want to make something that like feels really fun you know like eating it is fun like the or the name or making it some part of that is fun i don't know it's like an old improv uh, thing like follow the fun it's like, where is that leading you? Kind of like what we were talking about before, like follow the joy.
0: Yeah, well, I sure followed your fun <laughs> right to a of breadstick. I never had one of those before. I believe that is a unique new idea. Yeah, awesome. What a tribute to New Orleans. Tell me how that came to be. Yeah, that was
3: the goal with it. You know, like I've had... Uh, plenty of muffalatas in my life
2: and I love <laughs> so,
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if I may and I hope the internet does not attack me but I do think that there's too much bread in a muffalata I think the bread to stuff ratio is skewed in my mind <laughs> and so I wanted to take it and push the balance in the other direction and have more stuff and like a little less bread so it seemed like a breadstick was like the vehicle for that
0: what's going to happen next? What's the future? (laughs) What are y'all doing?
2: Yeah,
3: We came here for you to tell us.
2: (laughs) So, I don't know. In the short term, it's just seeing, okay, how can we make this space better? I mean, in terms of expansion, I mean, I know we do want to do some catering, offer some catering um, because we want to bring the joy to wherever you're hosting your event, whether it's at your home or at an event space. Yeah, you know, for me personally, I know I don't
3: dream of, like, 30 locations of IU Bakehouse around the world. Uh, I might, you know, eat these words later uh, if there's, like, (laughs) IU number two or something. But my goal is like to be embedded in our neighborhood and like to be a really important part in the way that Santa Fe was, you know, to like make that space proud <laughs> uh, and be a place that, you know, even if we're long gone, it's a hundred years from now, people are like, oh, I bake house. I used to get a baguette here <laughs> back in the day. I just love the idea that we are a part of like the fabric uh, of daily life for a lot of people in our neighborhood. and And I think that's what is so amazing about opening the bakery here specifically. Like we've lived in many places and I have experienced a level of appreciation from our neighbors that I think is above and beyond what could have existed. Like, you know, New York doesn't need one more bakery in Brooklyn. Uh, they have so many amazing places and I feel like we've been able to create something really nice and like a gathering place for our community. And that feels and we've really been
2: getting
0: thanked a lot yeah. for it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us on Louisiana Eats. I can't wait to see where you ladies will be taking IU Bakehouse. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much. That was Kelly Jacques and Samantha Weiss of IU Bakehouse in New Orleans' Marigny neighborhood. Over the last decade, artisan bakeries have experienced rapid growth across the country. That's true here in Louisiana as well. If you're looking for the platonic ideal in pastries, you can stop by a countless number of small shops and sample their goods. A few years back, Louisiana Eats stopped by Gracious Bakeries headquarters on South Norman Francis Parkway formerly Jeff Davis Parkway, on the border of Mid-City in New Orleans. It's where Gracious makes their delectable croissants, which you can enjoy at any of their three locations. We were there that day to observe just how their croissants are made. But first, we had a quick chat with owner and executive pastry chef Megan Foreman. We started on our
4: in our location on South Jeff Davis about four years ago in the Woodward Building, and uh, my husband and I started the company and just wanted to make sure that the idea would float and that people would come. It really is a crossroads of um, a lot of different neighborhoods. A lot of people pass through and um, on their way to something else, and so it really has become a destination location with the help of all these wonderful people that that work with us and and do amazing, really wonderful things and. So, we, I guess two years ago now, um, decided to expand and, and create a commissary so that we could do wholesale
0: products and serve more locations as we grew. Tell us a little bit about the life of a pastry chef um, long days, early hours. Tell me what a day in the life of Megan Foreman's like. Well, the day now
4: is much um, better than used to be. But when we first opened, um, it, was, it was early morning. The bakers get in at about four, and that's when they start their day. And um, we have different shifts, the ones who start at four and end at 12. Um, but you know, when you're an owner, You're kind of always on. Um, You're always taking care of your baby. So, um, you know, even when you're off, you're thinking about it and you're checking in and you're making sure everything's going well. But I mean, that is the biggest thing is having this group of people that everyone does their job so well that I don't have to worry. And I'm really lucky, you know, with that.
0: Out of all the products that you make here, what is your guilty pleasure? What's the thing that you sneak a little bit for yourself and you just can't help it?
4: Well, we were talking about that the other day, like um, people were talking about what is your spirit animal and I was like, well, my spirit animal in the dessert world is definitely chocolate mousse. It's it's like that's simple thing, but it's so delicious and it really showcases the quality of the chocolate, you know, that we use. And I could sit, that will be like if it's my last meal kind of thing, like I'll take a bowl of that um, to finish off. But you know, that really is the thing that I would go back to over and over again.
0: Next, Megan led us into the kitchen at Gracious, where the dough was prepped and ready to be laminated. The process that gives croissants those flaky layers.
5: Uh, My name is Summer Beach, and I'm the pastry chef at Gracious Bakery. I am going to laminate some croissant dough. I start with a block of dough that we have sheeted out to the size of a sheet tray. And then I take a block of butter, that is about half the size. And I'm gonna layer it in between. So laminating is just the process of folding dough over butter and creating layers of dough and butter. So I have a sandwich here of dough and butter. And the temperature is what's really important when you're dealing with croissant dough. It's really, really cold. Um, You want it to be as cold as possible. And the whole book, I mean, this is a 5,000-gram book of dough, so it's quite a bit. It's going to make about 70 croissants. And there's different styles of turning. Different different techniques to get different numbers of layers in your dough. So we do two two four-folds in our dough. So this is my first fold. And what I'm doing is I'm um, folding both ends of the dough to meet somewhere around the middle. It doesn't have to be the middle. And then I'm gonna fold it again to create a book. And what that does is now I have more layers of dough and more layers of butter. Um, I wanna say that this particular style we have about 27 layers at the end of the day.
0: Sounds from the kitchen at Gracious Bakery. What is the difference between baking soda and baking powder? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Louisiana's North Shore is turning up the heat for the annual Tammany Taste of Summer. Plan your escape to St. Tammany Parish for delicious adventures in dining, hotels, and other places to play in Abita Springs, Covington, Madisonville, Mandeville, and Slidell from August 1st through September 15th. Learn how to get your own Tammany Taste of Summer Pass by visiting TammanyTaste.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the difference between baking soda and baking powder? They both act as leavening agents, which means they're responsible for making things rise. In order for sodium bicarbonate, the scientific name for baking soda, to become activated, it must be mixed with an acid, which creates carbon dioxide gas, causing the mixture to rise. That's why you'll find buttermilk or lemon juice included in recipes with baking soda. Baking powder is a mix of sodium bicarbonate and cream of tartar, which acts as the acid so it activates with the addition of any liquid. But both have to be fresh in order to work, so test before using in your cake batter. Stir a teaspoon of baking powder into a glass of hot water. If it bubbles, it's good. Proof baking soda with vinegar. It will bubble aggressively, too. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. For over 25 years, Chef Jackie Pfeiffer has been training thousands of students and chefs in the art of pastry. He's co-founder and president of the French Pastry School in Chicago, where he serves as academic dean. His fame, however, extends far beyond these titles. Chef Jackie has had a long career in world-renowned kitchens across the globe. He hit a high point when he received the Melieu Ouvrier de France Award, chronicled in the 2009 documentary Kings of Pastry.
6: I'm working on two puffs today, the orange, hazelnut, and the exotic one. I have to decide which one I want to win.
0: Back in 2014, Chef Jackie was in New Orleans touring his now-classic book, The Art of French Pastry, which won the James Beard Award for Best Cookbook that year. He joined us in the studio to discuss his book and Life in Pastry, a journey that he began as a 15-year-old apprentice.
6: For me, that was a, a great idea at the time. At the age of 15, I said, you know, I don't want to continue high school, and, and they allow you to do that in Europe. They allow you to uh, join a trade. You could, be, you could become a carpenter, you could become a mechanic, a chef, a hairdresser, a florist, you name it. And you go into an apprenticeship, Uh, which means you have to work for a master carpenter, master pastry chef. For two years, you go to school once a week, and at the end of the two years of pretty much slavery, we could call it, (laughs) you go through an exam. If you pass, then you are a pastry cook. If you fail, you go for another year of apprenticeship, which is definitely great motivation to, to do well. My dad was looking out for me to to find somebody who would really teach me well. So he asked around and uh, people told him, Mr. Jean-Claus in Strasbourg, he's very strict and uh, he will teach your son well. I had no idea that this guy was much more than strict. And at the age of 15, when you go from having a a pretty much a life where you just think about playing soccer and just running running around, uh, I don't know, on the hills, and suddenly from one day to another you have to produce pastries for 12 hours a day for a guy who's screaming at you. It's very, very brutal, but it definitely changed my life.
0: All of this, I imagine, has left you with some scars that are like badges of honor.
6: There's physical scars and there's emotional scars that are that are still there. But but you know what, after those two years of apprenticeship I uh, graduated and at the age of 17 I was really not afraid of many things anymore. And also I grew up a lot in two years and then I earned a living already at the age of 17. I worked in uh, Borneo on the island of Borneo for the Sultan of Brunei, I became his pastry chef. And there, it was doing crazy things like doing uh, events uh, for 10,000 people in the jungle. Also worked in Saudi Arabia. uh, We were servicing the royal family. Uh, I worked in Hong Kong, which is a magical place. And and all those places, I could work there without uh, being afraid because of my apprenticeship.
0: Chef Jackie's journey eventually brought him to Lyon in 2007, where he competed for France's most prestigious pastry award, the Melieu Ouvrier de
6: France,
0: presented by none other than the French president, who at the time was Nicolas Sarkozy.
6: It's, um, I wish I could compare it to, to the Olympics. Maybe it's a little bit like the Olympics, where you go to another country to compete in a specialty. And uh, that that uh, competition for me was pastry, and I was competing together with 16 French pastry chefs. I say together because it's not a question of first place, second, and third. It's actually also an exam. So if you score enough points, you get the title of meilleur Ouvrier de France. But the most important thing is to go through the process and force yourself to take yourself out of your comfort zone, go to another country where they have different power, different uh, ingredients, and you try to duplicate the things that you were practicing on for two years in the U.S. So that's that's what it's all about, and it's just pushing yourself to another level.
0: One of the things that is described in this contest is that, um, as I understand it, what you must do is come up with a complete buffet presentation suitable for a wedding. And that what you came up with featured as many as 40 different recipes on that one table. What what did you do? What did you come up with?
6: Well, there are some tricky things that were required five different types of cream puffs. That means uh, five different flavors, right? The tricky part is that a cream puff is so simple, but actually they're expecting you to take that cream puff to another level. This is where you don't know how far should you go. Should you go crazy? If you go too crazy, the old-timer judges might get upset. If you go not crazy enough, they'll call you boring and outdated. So for the cream puffs, I had a chocolate and cardamom eclair. Uh, Under the eclair, there was a little base made out of a nougatine with different nuts and sesame seeds. I have another uh, cream puff that was filled with an exotic cream, so that's banana, mango, passion fruit. Underneath, there was a, a disc of coconut cookie, very, very thin, paper thin, and then I had another one that was a a hazelnut puff that was covered with hazelnut and sugar and underneath there was actually a cookie that looked like a little crown and in the middle there was some uh, candied orange jam. So that's just to describe three of the cream puffs and that's right there, that's maybe nine recipes, you know, there's another 30-some recipes, right? And, and that, that's what it's all also about. When you compete like this, you don't have a book next to you with, oh, put this first and this after, after simmer for 20 minutes. It should all be in your head. So you just put the ingredients on your table. You do it. Clean your dishes. Make another recipe.
0: Out of everything that you created, what do you think was the one that made people step back and go, my...
6: Well, I created an, an entire system, kind of like a MacGyver system, to make <laughs> cream puffs that stay round in a convection oven. Convection ovens have a fan that blows really, really strongly on the cream puffs. And when this happens, the, the cream puff uh, kind of like cracks open, explodes. And I just created a system with like refractory stones on all sides of of the oven and uh, the judges were really impressed that I schlepped all this from the US <laughs> to over there. But it, again it's always trying to think out of the box.
0: So who won?
6: Uh, you have to watch the, the <laughs> documentary.
0: But we all know that you received the title, that's for certain.
6: We don't know that. <laughs>
0: I'd like to know how that international film exposure changed your life. Did it change in any way after that?
6: Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's, we get a lot of um, people contacting the French pastry school, and they are interested in uh, becoming a pastry chef. And uh, to this day, I have people who tell me, you know, I am joining the the field of pastry because of the film. So mission accomplished, you know, if... if um, If this is what I wanted, and it is what I wanted, it's mission accomplished.
0: Chef Jackie went on to explain his teaching process and offered some tips and techniques from his book, The Art of French Pastry, which is an entire pastry course in itself.
6: Every six months, I welcome 108 students or so uh, at the French Pastry School in Chicago. And the first day of class, we tell them that they will not be able to use their cups and teaspoons and tablespoons. So I usually pick a person who seems really upset and I ask her to come uh, at the chef's demonstration table and I, and I ask this person to measure a cup of flour. And then once she does this, I say, okay, now we'll, we'll put it on the scale. And then I write how many grams it made. Then I say, okay, do it again. She does it again or he does it again. And every cup actually has a different weight. Now imagine if you make a recipe or, I don't know, a pound cake, you need 10 cups of sugar, uh, 20 cups of flour, this, that, you see the amount of, of errors that could, could happen. Then after that you have the liquid measurement. Same thing, if you fill it more, you fill it less, you just, you don't hold it straight. And then how do you measure eggs and things like this? If you look at whole eggs visually, if you have a sharp eye, you will see maybe that some of them are small, some of them are medium, some of them are large. If you have small eggs, you have 450 grams, which is exactly one pound, or 650 grams, which is a pound and a half. Your recipe is gonna fail. So we, we prove it to our students that if you actually just use one piece of equipment, which is one scale, that's all you need to do. You, need, you don't need to rely on five, six pieces of, of equipment. It's just to be more precise.
0: Another thing, it's done when it's done. What, why was that important? Oh.
6: The book was written after 20 years of teaching. The French press School is 20 years this year. And a lot of things in this book are because I saw mistakes that were happening every six months when we have new students. And students, for some reason, think that if the timer goes off, <laughs> the product is ready. And I had a student, she was so timer uh, 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 crazy that I told her, bake this at 350 for 20 minutes. So she set the timer for 20 minutes, and then the timer went off. And she's like, chef, the timer went off, the product is ready. I say, all right. And then she went in the oven... Took the product out, put it on her table, and I said, well, you just forgot one thing. And she's like, uh, what? Uh, you forgot to turn on the oven. The oven was not on. So, <laughs> but the, when the timer goes off, it does not mean that the product is done. It means that you have to go and, and check. It, you would call it the first check.
0: Last question for you, Chef. Yes. Here you are, one of the greatest pastry chefs undeniably in the world. And I'm curious if even today, is there any particular baking process that you still find challenging or that you <laughs> take a little breath before you get started on?
6: All of them. <laughs> because it never ends. I have only my brain to, to put all the knowledge that can be learned and try to make sense of it because I'm just a a baker, a pastry chef, right? I was not trained to be a food scientist, to be an artist and all this. So there's always so much that can be learned about food science, about artistry, about business. I don't know. On the way here in my airplane, I was reading a book about understanding baking because there's always some facts that you didn't know about and you're like, oh, that's why this is happening, that's why that's happening. So it's also beautiful that you know you are in a profession that will always have something to give you. There's always something you can research. It's never a profession where you can say, oh pastry, I've done it. I've been there, been there, done that.
0: Well that's the challenge and that's the fun. Yes. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Louisiana Eats.
6: Thank you so much. It was really a lot of fun.
0: That was Chef Jackie Pfeiffer speaking with Louisiana Eats in 2014. His James Beard award-winning cookbook is called The Art of French Pastry. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Halloween is just around the corner, and Tujek's Restaurant is hosting the annual Poppy's Pop-Up Halloween Drag Brunch on Sunday, October 30th. For a hauntingly good time, reservations may be made online and by calling 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans Roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, Producer Blake Longliné, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.